Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's episode of The Guilty Feminist is the first half of our show recorded at the London Palladium with Guardian Live, celebrating the 100th anniversary of some women in the UK gaining the right to vote. At the end of the episode, you'll hear the first public performance of Suffragedon, which we hope to keep developing into a full-length musical in a theatre, some viral videos so everyone around the world can see it, and a concept album of feminist anthems by the end of the year. For more details about how you can help make that happen and have those powerful feminist tunes in your eyes and ears ASAP, just keep listening. In the rest of the show today, you'll hear Sarah Pascoe, Margaret Cabon-Smith, Bishop Kayali, Jessica foster Carrie Quinlan, Anita Renand, Rachel Holmes and me, Deborah Francis-White. Enjoy! I'm a feminist. (laughs) But... Recently, I was asked to speak at the period Poverty March. And it was night time, so I thought, no one will really see me. And I didn't wear any makeup. 
But when I got off the stage, Channel 4 News shone a light in my eyes and said, would you do a bit for TV? And when I finished, I turned around and there was handsome and famous actor Michael Sheen. And I said, oh God, I look terrible. I don't have any makeup on. And he said, no, you look like an activist. And I thought, you are an activist is a compliment, but you look like an activist isn't. And I said that to him, and he went, oh, no, no. I meant you looked charismatic and windswept. I'm a feminist, but... I got a flat tyre a couple of weeks ago, and while I was getting ready to change the wheel, which I'm completely capable of doing, a man came up and said, would you like a hand with that? And I said, yes, please. (laughs) And he changed my wheel, and I stood there smiling at him and occasionally whispering things like, you're my hero. (laughs) It's totally worth it. Listen, do you know what? Changing a tyre is a skill, but also so is getting a man to change a tyre for you. It's an equal skill. I'm a feminist, but when Deborah booked me for this show, I spent four hours crying and agonizing over what I was going to wear and 15 minutes researching white suffragettes. You look great, babe. Thank you. I just just threw on whatever was in my wardrobe. (laughs) I'm glad that was in your wardrobe. I'm glad. Mm I'm a feminist, but when I heard about this gig, I didn't think, what an incredible opportunity for over 2,000 of us to get together and celebrate the centenary of one of the most life-changing, world-changing achievements that the sisterhood has ever had. I thought... London Palladium, motherfuckers! I'm wearing my new dress from Zara! I'm a feminist, but it's a bit close to mine. I know, that was an accident. (laughs) It was a proper accident. I'll change at the interval. Yeah, no, so will I. (laughs) I think we might change it to the same thing. I'm a feminist and 14 pounds, Matalan. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but when a mechanic recently asked me to describe what was wrong with my car, I explained it by telling him how different various parts of the car smelled. How, How did they smell? Inside, it smelled like toast. That, that, that means it's having a stroke. Possible you're having, having a stroke. stroke. I thought it's possibly yeah. having a stroke. Maybe you need to see the doctor. Ford Fiesta. Faulty models. One side of it did start... No. Um, yeah, the outside of it smelled of burning plastic and, um, and metal. Was it and on fire? It, no. Because that's the more obvious symptom at that point. And inside the... Hood. 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 <laughs> Bonnet. Bonnet. A more suffragette word, if anything. Um, 
It smelled of crisps, quite specifically of Doritos! <laughs> yes, if you haven't heard the news, Doritos are bringing out quiet Doritos for us. Because <laughs> we don't like the crunching. Yes, we had to remove them as sponsors from this event very rapidly. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I love a party as much as I love a revolution. Let's get on with the show! Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the guilty feminist centenary suffragette extravaganza with Guardian Live! That's right, that's right. A hundred years ago, women over 30 who owned property were allowed to vote for the first time. So if you're a rich lady over 30, this is your special day. Just give us a cheer. Oh, they're all sitting over there, aren't they? Just give us a cheer if you are a lady with a mortgage over 30. More than I expected. More than I expected, yes. Um, If you are a woman who is either under 30 or does not own property, or both, give us a cheer. More, more of them. Yes, well, this is, this, is, this is not your special day. Your special day is in 10 years' time. We will come back to the Palladium in 2028 and we'll have another go. Um, but, you know, we've got to start somewhere and we started with rich people, like always. Um, if you are a man over 21 who does not own property, give us a cheer. This is also your special day. Because you were also given the vote. Because before today, a hundred years ago, only men with property were allowed to vote. Imagine if that was the case in London today. It'd only be Russians voting. (laughs) Welcome Mayor Putin. But of course, it was even more difficult. People didn't even dream of having property then. If you are, of course, a white man who currently has a university degree and owns property, give us a cheer. They're nervous in this crowd. They're nervous. Just let's hear them again. Men, uh, men, men, it's men over 21. So if you're a man, you're 21 or over, and you have a degree and property. Give us a cheer. Every day is your special day. It doesn't matter how far we go back, it's the centenary of your people doing well. That's basically true. But you might say, Deborah, what have you got me there in your grab bag of liberties that was special for me at this time? Uh, Let me tell you, I have had a look. You got two votes. That's true. You got two votes. You could vote in your constituency and also your university constituency. So you could vote in Mayfair and Cambridge. (laughs) And not one of you ever went, is this fair? I don't think I should have two votes. Not one of you ever went, I don't, guys, should we be, no. That never, ever happened, because you had the L'Oreal principle. You thought you were worth it. (laughs) Maybe he's born with it, maybe it's inherited privilege. (laughs) It's true, it's true. But we can all vote now, uh, and that's a wonderful thing. We can all vote for Trump and Brexit. Um, Thank God the suffragettes are dead and are not here to see this, eh? It's good. 
It's good that they're not here on their anniversary. Um, but there were lots of objections, of course, to why women shouldn't be able to vote. It was a very long struggle. One of the objections that was made was that women would just go to Westminster if they could vote, and they would stop having babies, and the human race would die out. That was genuinely said. There were one billion people when they said that. There's seven and a half billion people now. Now, you might think that's an archaic viewpoint. Uh, you might think, well, obviously, that's what people thought 100 years ago. But a very similar argument was made to me this week by a Nazi on Twitter. <laughs> that's true. A Nazi on Twitter. And I, by a Nazi on Twitter, I don't mean just, oh, you're the wrong sort of feminist. You might as well be a Nazi. I mean an actual Nazi who had a swastika on his profile. And he posted a video of Hitler giving a speech and said, this is my favorite video of Hitler. It gets my blood pumping and inspires me in the morning. And he said to me, because I had reported him for hate speech, and maybe I had asked other people to do that too. <laughs> and he came after me and he went, so what are you feminists going to do if you win the internet? <laughs> he said, are you just going to not have babies and get fucked up on the weekend? <laughs> and I thought, yes! Yes! does sound like a plan. Now, now, to be fair, he'd, he'd got lucky with me. Hashtag not all feminists. Some feminists have babies and get fucked up on the weekend. <laughs> You're applauding a little too loudly for that. I, what I wanted to write to him and say was, my husband is actually half Jewish, so me pumping out babies isn't as in line with your core values as you might think. <laughs> I think he just saw Deborah Francis white and added supremacist. Another thing that was said was that uh, men would be too shy to express their opinions in the House of Commons if ladies were present. <laughs> they would not feel free to express their opinions. And to be fair, that has happened. We've barely heard an opinion from a man since 1918. <laughs> Getting an opinion out of a male MP is just like mining for Bitcoin. Some of our MPs have become so shy about saying their opinions out loud, they've had to write them on the side of buses. <laughs> uh, women were said to be too temperamental. That was 100-year-ago speak for premenstrual. Of course, the same thing was said about Hillary Clinton. She's 70. <laughs> She's 70. And when's Trump going to get his period? <laughs> sake, he's been premenstrual for years. Uh, the suffragettes uh, were not always called the suffragettes. They were called suffragists. They had a rebrand at some point. Some of them, they got a new website. Um, do you know who coined the word suffragette? The Daily Mail. I know. They were trying to be patronising and go, oh, little suffragettes. It was a guy called, uh, I guess he was a sort of Katie Hopkins of his day. Um, he was called Charles E. Hands. And you just know his female co-workers called him Hansy Charles. <laughs> you just know. But the suffragettes took this on. And they said, right, we're going to appropriate that. We're going to use a hard G. We will be the suffragettes, but with a hard G, we're going to suffraget the vote. We're going to suffraget the vote. And they say that women aren't funny. <laughs> it never caught on. It never caught on. From that moment on, they were, of course, the suffragettes. But they did an incredible thing because their fight has become our life. And just to step back a bit further and say... Why is it that we even want the vote in the first place? 
Uh, some of our closest cousins are into the human race are chimpanzees. And they are dominated by an alpha male. That's how they live. And a lot of paleoanthropologists think that the reason that we developed language as human beings, communication, and even human consciousness is in order not to live under alpha male dominance. So what I'm saying to you is the thing that separates us from the animals is feminism! Are you ready for the Guilty Feminist with Guardian Live? Suffragette Satanery Special! Then please welcome to the stage the wonderful Sarah Pascoe! Of course, I'm so excited that this is happening. I'm so excited to be part of it. It's nice to feel excited. I'm a feminist, and I'm one of the angry ones. And I'm... Because <laughs> there is, there is... I'm not saying I shouldn't be angry. There's a lot of things to be angry about, but I want to be angry in a motivated way rather than, like, frustrated crying. So I'm trying to... <laughs> calm myself down and um, so I've been um, trying to do things like I've been doing yoga for a year and I I would really recommend it I love it so much yoga lowers cortisol which is the stress hormone in the brain which is just fantastic I'm addicted to it yoga is my new drug Um, uh, my old drug was drugs um, (laughs) which I'm not going to say anything positive about um, drug taking because obviously that's very very irresponsible there'll be easily influenced people here no I'm not going to say anything positive about drug taking um, but what I will say is um, I didn't take MDMA until I was 32 and it was such a relief to know I could be happy because <laughs> you just assume the equipment's broken but um, no what I'm trying to say yoga is nearly as good there's no downside. Uh, it's wonderful. It calms you down. It's given me a whole new language. My favourite new word is namaste. <laughs> yes, it's a very old word. It's very sacred. And it means the yoga has finished now. <laughs> and then you're allowed to leave. <laughs> I love it. I think the key to being the least amount of unhappy you can be as you get older is you just have to accept things about yourself. Sometimes there are things about ourselves we don't like, and you do just have to accept them. For me, lots of things I don't like. One of them is I didn't really... I'm 36, I really thought I would have a family by now. In an ideal world, actually, what I wanted was to self-fertilise. I want, yeah, I wanted to have children that were exactly my genetics so that I could show them to my parents and go, see, it was my childhood. <laughs> They're fine. <laughs> um, but science can't do it yet. And then I had a crazy day last month where I just thought, I felt very empowered. I thought, I'm, mm, I'm going to do it all by myself. That's what I thought. I thought, I've got a good job. I can do it by myself. I'll just buy some sperm off the internet. Yeah, I'll just buy some sperm and I'll do it all by myself. And um, what I found out is sperm is so much more expensive than... I thought it was going to be. (laughs) It is tens of thousands of pounds. We are all wasting a valuable resource. (laughs) Seventeen-year-old me would have been a millionaire (laughs) if I'd learned how to catch it and chuck it in the freezer. (laughs) Why aren't we farming them? (laughs) It's such, so much money. It is, it's so much money. 
I've, I'm looking at my hands of what I've got written down to talk to you about sperm. Yeah, told them about that. Oh, I've been thinking a lot about... Um, I went to another country last year. I went to Morocco at the end of the year, and it made me think a lot about the space that we take up. Now, the thing is, going to Morocco by myself was a mistake. Um, what I'd done is I'd looked on the internet. I asked the internet, where will be hot in October, but also doesn't have mosquitoes? And the internet said Morocco. Um, what it didn't say is, oh, um, the reason there's no mosquitoes there is because the men are so disgusting... <laughs> that even insects won't land on them. They just go off into the desert and starve to death. And I'm aware that is a huge thing I just said, saying that all Moroccan men are disgusting. Obviously not all Moroccan men, just all the ones I met. And, um, and also, again, it's a huge cultural assumption there. It's naughty. I have to say this, because I am white. I'll admit it. Um, I'm, I'm white. But I'm a white English person. They're the two things... They're the two worst things about me, actually. They're the two things... And I'm aware that a lot of you will be white and English. I don't know how you feel about it. But I'm just so aware that throughout history, white English people have done the worst things to other people in every single country, and we still benefit from those things. And the thing is, I'm not saying I don't want to be white. I'll be happy to be a little bit white, but I also want to be a little bit blue to show how sad I am about the atrocities committed by white people, and then also a little bit red to show how embarrassed I am that white people don't do enough to acknowledge those atrocities. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I want to paint my face red, white, and blue, just so everyone knows I'm not racist. So so I went to Morocco... And, and it was a, a shock for me. Now, when I say the men are disgusting, what I mean is... If, and it's nothing to do with beauty or age, by the way. It's just if you are a Western woman, the men chase you and grab at you. And t- Imagine hungry, hungry hippos. And, and you're the balls. And nobody helps you. And the first time I left the hotel was for about seven and a half minutes. And then I went back crying. Because I'm one of those people who doesn't like to be sexually or aggressively touched by strangers. <laughs> I'm a snowflake. And so... Um, I went back to the hotel and I was crying in the lobby and the man at reception was trying to help me. He was trying to explain to me that I had to understand that my country is different to his country. He was trying to explain to me that to the men of Morocco, I behave like, hmm, how do you say, a prostitute who doesn't charge any money. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. He then said to me, if you want the men to leave you alone, it helps if you wear a ring on your wedding finger which just feels like the least feminist thing to do in the world. Like, I'm sorry, um, I actually already belong to a man. Can you please respect his property? Oh, Sarah, have you been on holiday? Like, yes, I went to the patriarchy. <laughs> There's no mosquitoes. <laughs> but while I was there, I was thinking a lot about murder. Um, no, no it, because I was terrified. Every night I couldn't sleep because I was so afraid one of these men was going to break into my hotel room and murder me, which is an irrational thought. Apparently, we're much more likely to be murdered by somebody that we know, and that's probably true. I am annoying. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking a lot about murder. Now, as we know, murder is a very difficult industry for women to break into. <laughs> it's male-dominated. <laughs> of murderers are male, 98% of mass murderers, and if a woman ever does break through, she's referred to as a female murderer, which she finds very patronising. And sometimes, even worse, a murderess. And it just makes her want to work even harder at killing people till she gets some respect. I was thinking a lot about murder. It made me remember my mum once, my mum once said that if she was going to kill somebody, also no one had asked her, she, she was looking out of the window and then she just turned round like, if I was going to kill somebody. No one, we were talking about kale. If I was going to kill somebody, 
I do it with insulin. It kills you. It gives you a heart attack if you're not diabetic. And um, they don't test for it in autopsies because it occurs naturally in the body. <laughs> Which just begs so many questions. Starting with, are you threatening me? <laughs> my mum does have access to insulin because my youngest sister is a type 1 diabetic. And also her favourite which doesn't make sense. She's broken. She's the most likely of us to die. Why get attached? But no, nobody likes her. But it made me think a lot about this, the idea of having a plan. It made me remember there's this Roald Dahl short story. It's called Lamb to the Slaughter. And basically a wife finds out that her husband is cheating on her. So she whacks him with a frozen leg of lamb and then she pops it in the oven and cooks it. And when the police come around to investigate the murder, she feeds them all roast lamb for their dinner, thus getting rid of the murder weapon. So clever. Um, <laughs> but I'm the vegan. And so I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking if I, if I ever find out someone's cheating on me, I'll have to kind of pelt them with lentils. <laughs> for ages and then I'd have to get all of the lentils up and pop them in a pot and kind of cook them up with herbs and spices and then when the police come round to investigate I'll be like oh would you like some dal rolled dal yeah and then the policeman maybe the chief he were like I wonder why she said rolled dal in that creepy way maybe it's a clue and then he'd go to the library and he'd read all of Roald Dahl's back catalogue and he'd read Lamb to the Slaughter and they'd go, oh, she pelted him with lentils. That's why the corpse was covered in all those little red circles. And then I'd have to go to prison, which I would deserve. Because I don't know if I've made this clear, I think murder's out of order. I do, I think it's one of the worst things a person can do. I, I, I'm very anti-murder, obviously. I'm being very flippant about something that's huge. And I feel like sometimes that is something that we do because things otherwise are too big to kind of process. Like, like when I say that thing earlier about my sister, which obviously I don't mean. She's not the favourite. <laughs> I'm famous! So, um... <laughs> So how does this link to anything? Um, this, it doesn't. Um, you know, it kind of does in my head. Can I tell you something I'm worried about? You might not agree with me on this. It's, just, it's a latent worry. Now, I hope you feel like I feel. I think that there's a massive conversation going on at the moment about power and gender and sex. Um, I, I think there's a massive conversation going on, and some of it feels like it's a step forward and a step backward. But in general, the fact that so many people are having this conversation, I think is really, really positive. But I'm worried... Because I feel like there's a generation of, of men who are babies now, who have just been born, but they're going to grow up in a different world, in a world where there will be respect, when gender is more fluid, when sexuality is more fluid, and I'm worried I'm going to fancy those boys. <laughs> they're going to turn 20 when I'm in my late 50s. And I'm a bit worried. I'm like, mm. <laughs> Explain intersectionality to me again. What if we become so empowered, we get predatory? And this whole cycle has to start over again. We've got to watch ourselves. We do have to watch ourselves. It's a genuine thrill to be here. If I can be just very earnest at the end... I think it's really interesting that we're celebrating something which was something that was an advancement for some women and not all women. And I think we have to be really aware because feminism is this huge thing that some of us are running in different directions. I feel like a couple of really terrible things. I think what happened with the grid girls is really shocking. I don't want feminism attached to that kind of thing. I don't know how you feel about it. I feel like sometimes there are these massive misunderstandings, like beautiful people of any gender are allowed to make money from that. The difference between the Grid Girls and the President's Club where people are being harassed at work, it's, they're entirely different things. It isn't about outfits. 
And I feel like I don't want to be part of something where some women get to decide who women are based on the bodies that they're born in. And I feel like something like this, it's so huge. Sometimes in the group we get kind of pulled along. We have to remember that it isn't... It's interesting that it's women in their 30s with money who got the vote first. Quite often in feminism, and I speak as one of them, we are the people who also have a voice. We have to be agitated in all the other difficult conversations to go on, as well as enjoying things like this as well, if that makes sense. Sorry, you might not agree with me, but then I kind of think that's part of it. But thank you so much for having me. I hope you have an amazing night. Take care. Bye-bye. First suffragette fact of the evening, folks. The first group to be banned from ever playing the Royal Albert Hall again was not the Sex Pistols, it was not the Who, it was not Black Sabbath, it was Girls Aloud. No. No, No. it wasn't, sorry. It was the Suffragettes. (laughs) Thank you, Carrie. Uh, The Suffragette colours, you may have noticed, are green, purple and white. Society women would wear these colours to signal to fellow sympathisers. And this really, if you think about it, would have been especially difficult in that time because uh, everything was black and white in them days. (laughs) Fact. See, we think it was the, like, the political fight that was hard. No, no, no. no, it it was was the lack of rainbows. Yeah, rainbows. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, terrifying. Sorry. No, don't be. It's brought everyone down. (laughs) Thank you. It's brought everyone down. (laughs) Well, we're all in living colour now, so it's fine, right? I'll pick us up. Uh, Fact. (laughs) Male MP, mm, Keir Hardy and George Lansbury supported women gaining the vote. Uh, Hardy attended many suffragette events, and Landry was imprisoned in 1913 after making a speech at a rally in support of the group's use of arson attacks. So, you know, not all men. (laughs) Dudes did stuff. Not all men. Some of them, and really, did they have to bang on about it? We know. We know not all men. There are four (laughs) men in this room. (laughs) And I'm assuming not them. Sorry, is Keir Hardy in? <laughs> Do we have George Lansbury? George Lansbury was good. George Lansbury was uh, quite an old guy when he became leader of the Labour Party. And everyone went, oh, he's too old, he's going to be rubbish. And he was quite lefty, and everyone went, ah, he's going to be rubbish. He inspired Attlee and Bevan and that entire generation that um, brought us the welfare state. So good on him. And got arrested on behalf of the suffragettes. And, so hooray. And was... Angela's brother. Yeah. And solved all those crimes in Cabot Cove. Well done, him. And on that bombshell, (laughs) back to Deborah Francis White! Thank you so much. Uh, that's our suffragette news gang. That's Bisha K. Ali, Carrie Quinn, and Margaret K. Bon Smith. And now, to celebrate 100 years of women's suffrage, our panel Anita Arnand, Rachel Holmes, and Jessica Fosterkew. Anita Arnand is a broadcaster, journalist, and biographer. She is the author of Sophia, Princess Suffragette Revolutionary a biography of a campaigner for women's suffrage and Indian independence. Uh, Rachel Holmes is the author of Eleanor Marks, A Life, and Sylvia Pankhurst, Natural Born Rebel. 
and Jessica Foster Q is a comedian and actor who regularly co-hosts The Guilty Feminists, and you might know from Merman's Motherland on BBC Two. So, firstly, Anita Anand. Every uh, panel needs a uh, Yes. I wasn't going to point out, Jess, that you haven't written a book about a suffragette. But, but I'm just here for texture. Yeah. She hasn't written a book about a suffragette, mm-hmm. but she has got a podcast about eating called Hoovering. So, in a very real way, it's new. You should listen to it. It's brilliant. Let's go to Rachel first. Rachel, you've written a book about two suffragettes, Eleanor Marks and Sylvia Pankhurst. Which one of them would win in a fight? <laughs> Whoa, that, that would be really, really hard-pressed to know because Eleanor Marks, 19th-century socialist, well-known for getting into fights with policemen in Trafalgar Square. Uh, Sylvia Pankhurst also got into fights with policemen in the 20th century, but I think it would actually be worth buying tickets for, definitely. Hard to say. <laughs> Hard to say. Uh, pick a winner. You've got to. I'm pushing you. I'm sorry to paxman you on this. I'm going to say it would be Eleanor Marks because she was not a pacifist. Sylvia Pankhurst was a pacifist. Great. So she probably at some point would have gone, OK, sister. So Eleanor Marks would give her a good kicking. Yeah. OK, great. Uh, <laughs> going to come to Anita. Anita... Out of Eleanor Marks and Sophia, Princess Suffragette Revolutionary, which one of those would win? Uh, Princess Sophia, because uh, she had a remarkable amount of Paris couture, which had lots of capey things, and could fight very dirty. So I can just imagine her getting Eleanor Marks in a stranglehold in some kind of Dior kind of outfit type thing, and throwing her to the floor. And she was not averse to fighting dirty. I mean, this is a woman who had a lot of privilege and a lot of connections, and thumbed her nose at the heart of them for the suffragette cause. Great, okay. Jess Foster Q, who's your favourite suffragette? Edith. It's Garrett. Garrett. Who's always been my favourite for absolutely minutes. Um, <laughs> no, because she, I've just learned, brought jiu-jitsu to the UK, not just to the suffragettes, but she introduced jiu-jitsu to the UK because our police were already using it. Yeah, and so she taught the suffragettes. And they did. They learned jiu-jitsu. what they called suffragitsu, didn't they? Suffragitsu. That's <laughs> true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And they had they had a group of women the called thing. the bodyguard. Was it called the bodyguard? Yeah, or the Praetorian Guard or the Women's Army, and they would come out wherever Emmeline was speaking, and they would make this little cordon around her, and they would practice on sacks that they would call the policemen. And they would learn to throw weights bigger than themselves. And if anyone came close to her, they would just chuck them over their shoulders. Wow. This is so cool. It's only a matter of time before we've got Me Too Kwondo. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we have this now, though? <laughs> Why are we doing this? They are Sylvia Pankhurst asked uh, this guy to do it, who was from the Irish Republican Army. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, it's fine, you know, we're used to doing with this and the brothers. And he thought she was joking. And when he saw these women in London, he was so scared, he pissed off to France. <laughs> and they kept sending letters saying, you're supposed to be here doing the drill. And he's like, yeah, I'll just send instructions to do it. But, yeah, so they had to do it themselves. Wow. Um, now, you, you, Anita and I, you, you had, I don't think to say your full name every time, it's not news night. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anita. <laughs> You'd be called John. Yes, Deborah. You've written about Sophia, who was yeah. a very prominent Asian suffragette. And I was looking at pictures today. There were so many Asian suffragettes. And we don't often hear their story. Yeah, Why I not? mean, you know, actually, I mean, there weren't that many Asian suffragettes in this country. You know, it sort of spread to India uh, after a fashion. But here in this country, she kind of stood alone because she had agency. 
And most of the Indian women, and it was India at that time, they were poor and they were voiceless and they were immigrants and they were looked on with scorn. So they were the ayahs who came over with the rich families uh, who had served in the Raj and they were sort of, they washed up here when the children grew up. They were kind of cast adrift and they were really adrift. So she was a little bit um, special, but despite the fact that she gave so much to the cause, and I mean gave money, gave her time, gave her body, gave her efforts, you know, absolutely. When you have nothing and you fight for a cause, that's completely understandable. When you have everything and you stand to lose everything, which she was one of those, it's a pretty extraordinary thing. And so she really does... She was peculiar because... For example, the Black Friday March. Probably most of you know about the Black Friday March in 1910. Fill us in in case some of us don't. So this is the closest. (laughs) I mean, I know they do, but I'm patronising you now. I know. Um, But this is as close as the suffragettes had ever got to getting the vote. They were going to get some kind of qualification, but they got really close. And Asquith, who was the Prime Minister... Yeah, I mean, really... Yeah, yeah, really, he's behind you. But he was, um, <laughs> he was, he was quite, you know, he was really forward-thinking in many ways, you know, the architect of the welfare state with Lloyd George, but he had a blind spot when it came to women. He could not stand the idea of women getting the vote. And the arguments, I mean, you did some of them so brilliantly about why women couldn't get the votes. A few, a couple, oh, shit, there's so many, and they make me so angry that I can't speak, and it gives me a tension headache. But two that I will share with you, their ovaries were too heavy... <laughs> Perhaps, listen, some of us suffer from that. Don't laugh. Yeah. <laughs> and my favourite one, which is sort of really. <laughs> too heavy to vote, but what? Okay. Do, do, do they have they're too heavy? They're, to heavy all the time. they're too like... heavy to think. So, you know, they, they are too, you know, you cannot how, be rational. How would a cisgendered man know? If ovary stops you thinking. It doesn't, you're thinking about reason, and that doesn't come into it. <laughs> I think you're fine. I think their ovaries think were too fine. heavy to think. Yeah. Good retort. Uh, And the other one was that um, if we allow women to get the vote in this country, we'll lose the Raj, we'll lose the colonies, because, and and the sentence that was used, the natives won't respect us if we're pushed around by women. Yes, hiss. God, that sounds like something Trump tweeted this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So, So in 1910, they are close to getting some kind of vote, and Asquith pulls the rug out from under their feet. He doesn't allow this bill the time to pass. And Emmeline has this meeting at the Albert Hall, not so far away from here, and she says, we are going to batter that door and make that man explain what he has done. Who's with me? And the roof is raised with the cries of these women, saying, we are with you, we are with you. And they know that there is violence around the corner because there is this word that's gone out that the Home Secretary at the time, you might have heard of him, Winston Churchill is so sick and tired of women clogging up the prison system that he doesn't want arrests. He wants them to be tired out so that they go home. He doesn't realise these are women who don't stay down. So one of the first women to put up her hand saying, I will be with you, is Princess Sophia Dilip Singh, who, to give you some background, she was a daughter of a Maharaja, the goddaughter of Queen Victoria, lived at Hampton Court Palace, (laughs) wore furs and diamonds and emeralds, and yet... When this call went out, she goes, I will lead with you. And she led this demonstration with Emmeline. They get to St. Stephen's Gate at Westminster. They're kettled, we'd call it right now. 
and an almighty riot breaks out because to tire the women out, the police think they've got mandate to do anything. So they charge at the women with truncheons on horses. They pick up these women and they throw them against walls. They throw them on the ground until they're insensible. This is tiring them out. And they use sexual violence. I had to go, you've probably seen this as well, the Brailsford reports, you know, boxes and boxes of testimony from women about how they were groped, their clothes were torn, how they were thrown into crowds of men. Do with these women what you will. And Sophia, why she's, to me, such a rock star, is that, you know, she's, she's five foot one, for a start, she's tiny. She's got size three feet. I've got Trump-like hands, and her hands are smaller than mine. <laughs> I've tried to shove them into one of her gloves. It didn't work. But she dives out between the kettle, and she goes into the right because she sees one of her sister suffragettes being repeatedly thrown on the ground. She doesn't know her name, but she comes and she sort of pops up in the middle and shoves this woman away from the man, shoves the policeman off. And you've got to imagine, she was such a famous woman in her day. She was like a pin-up princess in this country, a Kardashian of her day. And it's like seeing like Kim Kardashian jumping up at you. And the policeman tries to disappear. Like, don't look at me, don't look at me. And she follows him because she wants the number on his epaulette. And when she gets it, she just keeps reciting to herself, V700, V700, V700. And she writes after they're all arrested eventually because they don't tire and Churchill has to have them arrested. None of them are charged. Not one woman is charged because this testimony would just be so killing that they're not allowed to stand trial and give evidence. And Sophia writes complaint after complaint, not about what was done to her, and she was quite roughed up in this riot, being a princess, daughter of a Maharaja, Queen Victoria's goddaughter. She never complains about herself, but what happened to that unnamed suffragette. And it goes all the way through the Metropolitan Police to the head of the Metropolitan Police to the Home Secretary. And there's one of the best finds as a historian, and Rachel, you'll be able to do this. You find a piece of paper where you can see the mood it was written and scored deep into this piece of paper... Send no more reply to her, WSC, Winston Spencer Churchill. So this was a woman who just didn't care. She made enemies of Churchill. She made enemies of George V. They could have turfed her out of Hampton Court. All of this was charity from the British. You know, they'd taken her father's kingdom. All they gave her was the pocket money from that. They could have just chucked her out and she didn't care. How much, Rachel, do you think women of influence were using their influence I suppose it depends what you mean by influence because there are all these really fantastic, iconic figures and they are really wonderful women and they did speak truth to power and they did argue, just as Sophia did with people like Winston Churchill, uh, Sylvia Pankhurst was exactly the same. Winston Churchill could not get away from her his whole life. The Foreign Office actually had a, um, a folder, a whole file and on the front of the file, it said, how to answer letters from Sylvia Pankhurst. <laughs> and that was after the suffragette movement and after the Bolshevik Revolution and after her founding the Communist Party of Great Britain, but that's another story. But influence also means who made the movement. And the activists on the ground, it's really important to remember, were really working women from the 1870s and the 1880s in the Lancashire mills in Scotland all around the north in Manchester and Cottonopolis. And they were really, really the basis of the movement. And there had been a suffragist movement and there had been lots of taking a petition and John Stuart Mill with a quill pen writing that out and Sylvia Pankhurst's daddy, Richard Pankhurst, sort of helping him because he was a lawyer. And all of that had happened and that was very important. But it was really the women in the trade union movement and organising who supported it. And that's the backbone of it, and that really, really comes through. So I think influence meant a combination of things, and it meant having that mass movement 
and an uprising. I mean, there is a reason why there's that phrase, rise up women, and the volume and the numbers and the women who were making sacrifices, and they were serious sacrifices within their own communities and their own homes and literally in their own bedrooms. So that kind of influenced too. What rights didn't we have? Because I think it's really easy for us to not notice what we have. We're just entitled to what we have. So watching the movie Suffragette, which I think is a pretty broad strokes, you know, it's meant to be... For, it's it's meant to... a very um, complex and helpful documentary. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. When my sure. son was 90, they do this amazing thing in cinemas now where that you can take babies up to the age of one and see like current films, and you can all you're just allowed to ruin it for each other. Um, so so it's a was, special baby it's ruining a special baby, screening. I think that's what it's called, baby ruining the film screening. Um, so when he was 19 days old, I took my son to his first ever film, which was Suffragette. Woo. Uh, so on the one hand, he was already a really good feminist, but on the other, he did make me have my tits out for the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, that like, sounds like Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> not all toddlers. <laughs> Hashtag not all toddlers. Uh, not very many is the answer to your question. I mean, I terms forgot of... what my question was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not very many feminist toddlers. Right. Oh, right. Yes. Because in the film Suffragette, which was there to sort of go, look, it was sort of like this. And I know it's a Hollywood film. Women had no rights over their own children. Their children could be taken away, adopted. There was no right of parenthood the way there was with a man. Women had no rights to complain about the treatment that they had from their bosses, even if they were being sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. What other rights did we just not have? That Things that we take for granted now. The right to contest the weight of your own ovaries. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good example, Jess. A good example. Thank you. Uh, Is there anything from people who've written books on suffragettes? you like having the most that you think god i really would not like to go without that being able to hold a microphone and talk out loud and actually it's a really serious point i was thinking about this earlier and it refers back to uh what anita was saying i was about to call you sophia there but you know (laughs) call me sylvia it's like you and will i am i did so this is the weird life that we're in at the moment i did the one show yesterday (laughs) (laughs) with will i am I'm a feminist, but... but <laughs> so, Will, I am... Uh, just, just interrupting your very important point, but this is so, so funny. Um, <laughs> so he Warm was, them up. He, yeah. was, he was pretty, um, sort of, you know, nonplussed by this whole thing. Like, that was really bad. Uh, afterwards, we had this chat, but that was awful. And I said, you know, it was awful. And he said, because I had this picture, and I'll show you this thing before we go, because I'm so excited about it. And I showed him this thing, and he goes, you are her. And I said... No, I feel, yes, we're all her. And she goes, no, no, no. You're the reincarnation of her. Or you've time-travelled and you're her. What? So this may be true. What do I know? I don't have that many hyphens in my name. It's possible. But... Will I aren't? <laughs> Should have told him about the little hands not going in the little gloves. Will I am said that you were the reincarnation of Princess Sophia. <laughs> or, or that I'd been on some kind of time-travelling journey. Well, surely you'd know more if it was that. Reincarnation, you might not know. spooky. But time travel, yeah. you would know if you'd gotten in a, in a DeLorean. I'm not a physicist. <laughs> I don't know. Or will I am. I don't understand any of it, but it was, yeah. Anyway. He's yeah. a great philosopher. No. <laughs> did, did you sleep with him is all we care about. Did you, <laughs> did you go out afterwards? And... I, I never had sexual relations with that man. <laughs> <laughs> Can you show us? Can I show you this 
Yes, please. Okay, so, so Royal okay. Mail... Royal Mail have just brought out a set of suffragette stamps. They're not on sale till next week, but they are beautiful. And they are suffragettes that you wouldn't have heard of, so not Emily, not Millicent. Groups of people, including Annie Kenny. Women we won't have time to talk about right now, but, you know, mill workers like Annie Kenny, absolute superhero. And one, for this woman, I devoted five years of my life to uncover her because she'd been completely buried. This is her stamp. So here we have... Sophia Dilip Singh, oh, wow. the Hampton Court Harridan, That's a feisty brown bird, and that matters a lot. We are shit at writing women's history, and women of colour, we're invisible. And there is the Queen of Great Britain looking on, and I kind of love that a little bit. <laughs> so what do you think that Eleanor and Sylvia and Sophia would think of us now, what we're doing? I think that they would be absolutely amazed and pleased by our lives. I think that they would really sort of look... I mean, you made that great comment earlier when you said, you know, we we live it because they did it. And to actually see and to experience and to feel the degree of freedom that we have. At the same time, I think they would be quite impatient with us. They were really, really, really loud. And I'm not saying we're not loud, and I'm not saying that we don't stand up and speak for ourselves, but I think that kind of sense of not giving way, not rolling back. I think they would sit here and they'd go, um, it's not bad, but is this all you did? We have more men called John who've been elected to the House of Commons than all the women put together. It's a true fact. You know, women who put their heads above the parapet still get trolled to high heaven. Death. Joe Cox, can we just remember Joe Cox for a moment? <laughs> so I think, I think what, you know, and some, some people get into a lot of trouble about talking about equal pay these days. You know, so the, these are things that they would just look at us and just say, you know, push a little bit harder because we had to. And it hurts and it's hard and it will cost you, but do it because it's the right thing. And I think that... There was a line where at one point somebody was asking her about breaking the law and she said, yeah, I am what you would call a hooligan. (laughs) And these were not well-behaved women. They were really, really not well-behaved. They didn't talk nicely at dinner parties. They disagreed. They took different political positions and they weren't frightened to do it both in their own families and with their friends as much as they were in a political environment. And I think it's really, really important to remember, particularly when we see the floppy hats and all that kind of stuff, that these were really, really badly behaved, challenging, awkward squad. Yeah. So, so there was awkward this... Squad. They're so awkward. Hashtag awkward squad. Yeah. If you are tweeting about this evening, please hashtag awkward sport. But they were also really funny. They were really cheeky. So one of the things that they did, and of course I'm not... Cond- I got really told off. I did like 24 interviews with regional people. And they said, somebody said it was terrorism. You'd call it terrorism. So there was one thing which they did, which is they invaded the glass houses at Kew and they ripped up all the orchids and they left little notes. <laughs> And the papers were apoplectic, you know, even more than most of the things. They said, women like flowers. (laughs) (laughs) And these orchids were missing. And the next time Eveline was speaking, she said not a word about the attack, but she had a vase of orchids. (laughs) When 
Emily Wilding Davison, which I'm sure many of you will remember, who rushed out in front of the King's horse, in fact, depicted at the end of Suffragette. I don't know if you were breastfeeding at that point. You may have missed it. But... I was breastfeeding while simultaneously watching. Mm. But the, the, the press, the press were absolutely apoplectic and concerned about the horse, what had happened to the King's horse. As it happened, the King's horse was not even lame. There was not a scratch. Then concerned about the jockey, and then, of course, not remotely concerned about that wild terrorist woman. But there's a nice coda to the story. She died unconscious, and, and she never regained consciousness, as you know, and she died a couple of days later. But some years later... The jockey, he felt very guilty about it, and he got into the habit of taking flowers in suffragette colours to Emily Wilding Davison's grave. We do not know what happened to the horse. (laughs) Well, it has been an absolutely incredible education. We wish we could stay with you all night, but we cannot. So please give a huge round of applause to Jess Foster (laughs) Q. Yes, thank you. I mean, I think suffragette news is a bit misleading. Um, there's not much news about what the suffragettes are doing. It was a while ago. Uh, suffragette facts, let's call it that. <laughs> so, suffragette prisoners were force-fed using truly grim methods. Uh, rubber tubing was forced into their throats, vaginas and anuses. Snowflakes. Um, I'm not sure you can ingest food <laughs> through. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I have got a falafel in my pants for um, just, just to <laughs> test it. Yeah, interval snack. For the interval, yeah. yeah. How much nutritional value does a vagina soak up? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty... Well, unless you're ingesting sperm and it puts on weight, that's does not that nutritious. Ingest? That's not a thing, no. no. Does, is that what makes your ovaries heavy? It, yes! That's probably This it. is science! There you go. People... Yeah. I feel like... Go on. Have a guess. I'll say I'm it. You've got to say realized, it now. Oh, Misha, I'm at the Palladium, and I'm going to say, I feel like the butt is connected to the digestive system. You, yeah, yeah. You can, you can definitely get yeah. some... This is grim. ...through that. Bear, um, <laughs> there was a Bear grill show where um, he was saying, no, if you couldn't find clean water... You stick a hose pipe up and you pour it that way because then it doesn't really matter if it's not clear. It doesn't give you an upset stomach because oh. it doesn't get that far, but it does rehydrate you. Top tip there, feminists. <laughs> I do will you know, say, do just you know, as, like, sorry, just for guilty feminist, uh, like liability-wise, do not do that. <laughs> oh, do, but Sue Bear Grills, not Deborah. <laughs> what I was going to say was um, there's much more talk about Bear Grills and Will I Am in this show than I was expecting. Yeah. As a follow-up to the tube in the places we don't want. They introduced the Cat and Mouse Act. It was in 1913. And that was to address the fact that they're in these abusive, horrible situations and they're becoming really unhealthy while they're in prison. But it led to a vicious circle. So the women would be released from prison, allowed to get healthy, and then as soon as they were healthy again, they'd put them back into prison so they could do all the awful stuff all over again. So that was the Cat and Mouse Act. That was in 1913. I mean, there's almost no way to make that funny. <laughs> It's just a horrific cycle of abuse. That's uh, <laughs> but, some good stuff. But with a catchy name. Indeed. 
Not the fun board game I thought it would be when I looked it up. Cat and Mouth Act. It's like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, but vile. Yeah. You're welcome. Now, now for the suffragette weather. (laughs) (laughs) The Guilty Feminist presents Suffragette and the Musical.
am not woman. Call me by my name. We've sacrificed a lot. We are so many soldiers down. Emily literally threw herself in front of the king's horse and died on the ground. Hoping for humanity to wake up and be found. We are women. Give us our crown. Our
that I have commissioned a musical so I can be in it. <laughs> and you might be a little bit right, but mostly, I, no, honestly, I did wait to be asked. I mean, it would have been rude if they hadn't, but it's still... Uh, basically, I thought that the suffragettes were not always intersectional. They were not always inclusive, obviously, and it was 100 years ago. How do we make this story more inclusive? And the answer is always to hand the narrative over. And so I wanted to... You guys, can you all introduce yourselves first? Gentlemen first. Oh, you go. I think. I think. You can Sorry, very, uh, my name is Mark Hodge. I'm. Uh, I've, I'm the co-writer of the piece tonight. Sorry, can I just say it hasn't escaped our notice. You're a white man. This is true. Uh, how? What did you do here? What did I you do? did. From start to finish, I did exactly what I was told. Yes. I was told to compose the music. Right, great. Mark Hodge is our resident uh, composer and he's also done the Guilty Feminist theme tune and the Global Pillage theme tune. Um, and I needed someone to get this ball rolling and I knew that no one would do it like Mark. And uh, we need to then send back down to Becky uh, because Hello. Becky was the second person we met. Yes. Can you tell us about yourself? My name is Rebecca Phillips. Um, I'm a singer and a vocal coach and many other things. And you, and you put this together like in a few weeks, which is absolutely amazing. Yes, three and a half weeks. Uh, absolutely amazing. Um, it seemed slightly like a mad idea. What drew you to it? What made you think, oh yeah, I'll... Well, have we had that. a discussion. Yeah. And uh, you asked me if I could do this. And then I said, yeah, no, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, it was just... 
to me, one of the things about uh, the suffragette story is that it doesn't really speak to women of colour. I hate to say it, but we didn't feel like we can really relate to the story so well. But as women... But as women, it's a really important story. And so it was cool to reframe this and make it something that people could be attached to now. All, all women, as opposed to just a certain cross-section. I'm Orisi and I'm a hip-hop rapper. <laughs> what drew you to this story, to the medium? Why does it work with the medium of, of rap? I feel hip-hop is just a very misunderstood and underrated art form and means of discourse. Uh, the principles of hip-hop are peace, love and unity. And I think when you use the element of rap, which is just spoken word with rhythm and poetry, it's a very beautiful and quite playful way of telling a story. And hip-hop reaches out to quite a diverse audience, and I think that's something we should really be encouraging, is the more of a cultural cohesion and more of a cultural merging and sharing of ideas, because there's so many exciting avenues to explore and to share with audiences, and new audiences as well. There's so many people, like... I admit this is the first time I've been to the theatre since I was eight. Imagine that. So thank you for listening. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda says that so many kids are interested in history and that period of history because of the medium of the musical. And I think the more history lessons we can get into hip-hop, the more more revolutionary stories we can tell, especially. Uh, Roxanne, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. um, Hi, I'm Roxanne. I'm also a hip-hop artist. And writer, yeah. Um, Do you think hip hop is especially good for telling revolutionary stories? Oh my god, of course. Um, I definitely think it was especially me um, in character of Emmeline. It's a revolution. It's a freedom of speech, and also hip hop again is a very male-dominated industry. So it's all about being rebellious. It's all about being a strong woman, having something to say. So, yeah. Um, so here's the thing. It turns out developing a musical is super expensive. Um, I have now spent all the money I have uh, on this first 12 minutes, and uh, I hand over to you. Uh, we have a Kickstarter. What we'd, what we'd like to do... Please. What we'd like to do, these are incredible women, and all the women just pulled together and wrote on it. Every time I turned up to rehearsal, they were just doing more and more extraordinary things, and writing together, collaborating, it was amazing to see. Our Kickstarter is something that if we could all put in, people at home listening at the podcast, people here, people here, if you could donate tonight while you're drunk, <laughs> because, because you will give more than you will in the morning. <laughs> this is the DFW principle of crowdfunding. Uh, people are less tight when they're tight. <laughs> See, I can rap. Um, <laughs> just because I was playing the white part in this doesn't mean, you know, it was the whitest part. I, I was playing the patriarchy, guys. <laughs> I, I think they were like, we've got a part for you. And I was like, sure, which revolutionary would you like me to be? And they were like, you've got a big book. That's partly so you look official and partly so you don't forget the words. And I was like, I like this job already got hats what, what do I want but the funding for this uh, really will come down to you what we'd like to do we've got another show here in May for the 100th episode of The Guilty Feminist we'd like to present a longer version of this then which we will be able to uh, if you pay and then <laughs> we're doing a show at the Roundhouse that we'd like it to get longer till the end of the year the last uh, celebration for suffragettes there was another bill passed in November and in November we'd like it to be a full length show so if you've got a quid five quid ten quid 
pop it in. We also want to make it a series of viral videos so everyone around the world can see it. We'll do short ones that will travel fast. We'll put the whole thing up online. We'll do a concept album. If you, <laughs> if you, if you, if you fund it, basically. If you are, we're doing a concept album, Rebecca. Oh, That's in, you, we've said it on the stage at the Palladium now. Come on, it's RSC's first time to the theatre. You don't have to think people like the theatre. Um, but we will need your help, and you could tell other people. If you are a very wealthy theatre producer, there's money here, obviously. This year and next year, come on, it's the year of the woman. This show will travel. If your... If your organisation is having a corporate do where to celebrate the suffragettes and the centenary, this travels... This travels with a backing track. <laughs> we come in, we, we fuck up your garden party, we fuck off, all right? <laughs> We're expensive, but worth it. My great dream is to pay these women as if they're white men. Okay, yeah, look, he's in musical theatre, so he counts as one of us. <laughs> Big round of applause for the cast of Suffragettes! Thank you so much for listening, guys. have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, produced in association with Guardian Live. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Zielinski. Thanks to Gina Dicio, and thanks to Michael, Sophie, Bridget, and everyone at Guardian Live, and Matt and his team at the London Palladium. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Suffragedon was created, composed and performed by Rebecca Phillips and Mark Hodge, with lyrics and lead performances by Roxanne with three X's, Oracy, Amanita Francis and a cameo performance and some lyrics provided by Deborah Francis White. There are some additional lyrics by Jessica Fosterkue and a lead performance by Coco Brown. Other performances by Rebecca Amissa, Gemma Berengoy, Makita Carbon and Corinne Leandri, with music by Amakalia and synth production by Nick Sheldon. If you would like these feminist anthems in your pocket, in your ears and in your eyes, then go to guiltyfeminist.com and follow the link for Suffragedon Kickstarter or search for Suffragedon on Kickstarter. Please give generously. We need to pay these women of colour like they're white men. Oh, go to the... Thank you. Go to guiltyfeminist.com and follow the link to our Kickstarter, or the Kickstarter is called Suffragedon. So if you just go into Kickstarter, I don't know how many hip-hop musicals there'll be called Suffragedon right at the moment. No more than four, make sure you find ours. Um, 